Well, this morning we're continuing. And, you know, how many of you have been in a class that I have taught? You've been in a class more than twice. Any class that I've taught more than twice. Then you know one thing. What we do, and I say we because David and I teach together, although David isn't involved in this series particularly right now. He will have some part of it. But what we do is this. We pray, and we genuinely seek the leading of God's Holy Spirit. What do you want us to teach? We don't teach, if you would, what we want to teach. We genuinely, hey, Paige, teach what Holy Spirit leads us to teach. And so we're in that series right now. We've had these series. We've had books of the Bible. But as we teach... We're not only led by the Holy Spirit to determine who determines what we will teach, but then the course it will follow, you know, the the way it will work out. And so from week to week, we have an idea, okay, this week, I think we're going to be going down this road this far. I'm going to take a walk tonight. I think I'll walk 10 blocks, right? And as we start pursuing God's will down that particular path concerning the outfolding of the teaching, we may go the whole block. Hey, I actually traveled the block that I felt the Holy Spirit wanted me to travel. It may be that as we take four steps out, the Lord says, look, I don't want you to go to the end of the block yet. I want to kind of settle down and go a little slower here. Do we get what I'm meaning? And so that's always the case, and we, we're going to follow that way. And so I know t- to some of you it may feel, you know, he doesn't move along. The purpose of the class is not to move along. The purpose of the class is to hear from the Holy Spirit, walk with him as he leads, and teach according to as we understand he's giving us teaching to do. And God is not interested in just dumping a lot of information on us. I'm taking too long to say this, I know. But he wants to intricately knit together his word in our hearts, in our minds, so we can have a greater understanding of what he's talking about. So with all of that, let's continue. We're continuing to talk, to trace out, remember, the Old Testament evidence. When John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word only begotten, remember, in the Greek is what? Monogeneos, weos. It means one of a kind, unique, one and only, of a group or a class. And as we'll see specifically with Jesus, he's not only one of a group, but he's the only one of a particular kind. Although the word monogeneos means a group or a class. But we're going to have it narrowed down for us as we pursue, get into the Old Testament writings. And we'll see how it begins with a larger class or a group and narrows down, continuing to narrow down to one specific, unique, absolutely one of a kind, no one else like him kind of a person. Are we seeing what we're doing here? We're going, as it were, down a funnel. We're not just saying, okay, here, here, and here. We have to trace out. We want to trace out the funnel here. Last week we saw Genesis 3.15. Remember, he's the first, it's the first mention of this, this unique son. What is 3.15 in Genesis? 
Remember the curse? The Lord talked to, uh, after the fall, the Lord said to Satan, what? The seed of the woman, what is, what's going to happen? This one who is coming from a woman will what? Crush you as to your head and you will crush him or bruise him as to his heel. So here's the problem. Here's the first promise of a unique son. The seed of a woman means that a woman will have a son. And because why do we know it's a man or he uh, male? Because the word says he. So a woman is going to bear a son. From the very beginning, a woman will bear a son. This one person, one unique person of all the people on the planet, whoever will ever live, this one person will come and he will do the only work that can be done to redeem God's people. That is what is said there. That is the deliverer, the Messiah, the promised anointed gift of God. From the very beginning, soon as the fall hits, God comes in and says, look, I'm protecting my purpose. You see, you thought I'd say I'm protecting my people. No, I'm protecting my purpose. Therefore, I protect my people. Can you say amen? I am protecting my purpose. Therefore, I protect my people. It's never my people primarily. It's always my purpose primarily. Amen. The people are the secondary or the means of the purpose being manifested. We always want to make sure we keep God central in any and everything in our lives and of our understanding of the word of God. And then we saw this unique son was also promised to Abraham. Remember in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord said, look, I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to, nations are going to come forth from you. I'm going to make you a great nation, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. How can Abraham have a family without having a son? So there's a son in here. You may say, I don't see any son in there. Well, of course you see a son in here. By the way, I will make you a great nation. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Why is God promising to bless Abraham. Typically, when we start talking about the work of God in the Old Testament and the covenants, typically too often is begin the blessing of Abraham. Everybody goes back to Genesis chapter 12, the start, the, the real work of the gospel, the real presentation. Well, of course you've missed the point. Why does he say blessing of Abraham? Why does he say I'm going to bless Abraham? Why? Why is he giving that promise? Because in Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then verse eight, he, 28, he says, I will bless. I will bless. Abraham, God is promising to bless Abraham with a son because his purpose originally in creating humanity was to be a blessing to humanity. You see, it goes all the way back. We must trace every work of God, everything that God does to Genesis 1, 28. That's the purpose for which God gave us Genesis 1-1. Do we see that? So we must move forward within that context to see it all together. Generations later, after Abraham, you remember, the descendants of Abraham, or the seed of Abraham, would grow into a mighty nation. And God is going to call this nation, in Exodus 4-22, he's going to say, Israel is my what? My firstborn Son. He's my son. And by the word, we're going to get into the word firstborn in a week or two. Very, very significant word, but we'll look at that later on. Israel's my son. So all of a sudden you see all the nations of the world. Israel is a unique nation to God. Why? Well, because of Jews. Well, no. Well, because they're, they're Abraham's sons. No. 
Because God has decreed before the foundation of the world that in this nation, in the nation, and through the nation will come his one and only unique son. Do we see that? That's the significance of Israel. And everything of the Old Testament is the outworking, the unfolding, the moving forward of bringing forth this one man upon the earth. Every promise is about that man who is coming, what he will do, what will happen to him, and how he will return. Every activity of God has to do primarily with the moving forward to the time in the fullness of time. God brought forth his son, born of a woman. You remember that scripture. By calling Israel my son, God is signifying that he and Israel, what, were in a filial, F-I-L-I-A-L, filial. What does filial mean? A father-son, a family relationship. God is saying, this is going to be, I am showing you in this nation what I want of my people. I am showing you through this nation that I want a people who will walk with me as my son and I will be their father. This father-son relationship. This is what God had intended for Adam and Eve, that you will be in my image. You will walk with me in a father-son relationship. In other words, Adam and Eve were supposed to be the beginning of a, the corporate expression of the relationship that exists between the son of God and the heavenly father. That is the relationship that is to be corporately expressed in God's people, specifically the relationship between the Father and the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian revelation. The corporate expression of, the, of, of God is an expression of God's Trinitarian nature. Are we following me on this? Am I going too quickly? I feel like I'm speeding along, but okay, I'll just make sure you're with me on here. Adam and Eve failed in that. Therefore, God is going to raise up another group of people, and they are going to fail in that. But what is God showing? God is showing this, that this corporate, uh, sorry, that this filial relationship cannot be really imaged and expressed accurately and exactly except through one person. So all of these are types and shadows intimations or hints of a coming one who must come, who is the only one who can fill, fulfill Genesis one twenty six. I mean, you do realize, of course, that when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, he already knew that he was speaking about the son. He already knew that. He already knew that he was speaking about Christ. That's in that verse. It didn't happen. Uh-oh, what do I do in here? How am I going to get this thing? We have to go back and do it again. No, he already knew that. He created a perfect man and a perfect woman, put them in a perfect environment, and showed that even perfect people in a perfect environment cannot image him. Why? Because they are created. And a created being cannot image an uncreated being. But he began that way in order to show the glory of himself through this uncreated son who would become a man in the incarnation and then join us into a fellowship with him who is uncreated. Are you following me on this? Okay. And so let me, let me see where I am here. I sometimes get ahead of myself. So a descendant will come now. 
You remember how Matthew 1.1 begins? Some of you remember that Matthew 1.1? He begins it like this. Here's the verse. The record or the book or the record, you know, the record of the genealogy. And he gives Jesus three titles. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. What is the, the word Christos is the Greek. What is the Hebrew for Christos? Messiah. The record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ What's the second title? The son of David and the son of Abraham. He's specifying something about Jesus that is completely unique. And he's not only saying up front, this is the genealogy of this one unique man. But this genealogy is taken from the Old Testament. What I'm telling you in the rest of this gospel is all verified in the Old Testament has already been given to us in shadows and in parts and in pieces and in prophecies and in promises in the Old Testament. Matthew is telling you, I am not telling you anything new. What I'm giving you here is the unfolding or the fulfillment of that which has been from the very beginning. I am giving you now a history of this man who comes into view when does Jesus, when does Christ, when does the Son of God first come into view in the Bible? Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. Come on, class. When does Christ, when does the Son of God first come into view? When? In the beginning. Are you with me? He's in that verse. He is in that verse. Are we seeing the Bible for bigger than what we thought it was before? So Matthew's saying, what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you this history given to me by the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be the history of him who was in the beginning with God. Remember, first, I mean, John 1.1. 1, 1. That's what we're doing here. So he gives you three titles. He calls Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Now, these three titles together designate the uniqueness of this son in whom God will fulfill his eternal purpose. Each title is an Old Testament designation of this promised unique son. So is all this in your notes? Okay, first, first Christ. We, we talked about this. Remember that the word Christ is a Greek for Messiah. Misha means anointing. It means to pour oil upon. Designation, consecrated, specifically for the purpose of God, relating mostly to kings, priests, and prophets. Those were the men who anointed specifically for the purpose that God had called them to whatever it was that he was wanting them to do. So it is a man who was called out from among other men, anointed particularly for the purpose of fulfilling the purpose of God. So Jesus is called Christ. Secondly, the son of Abraham. <clears throat> Why does he call him the son of Abraham? Well, we just said it. In Genesis 12, what? God promises that he will bless the world, bless the nations. Through you, many nations will come. They will all be blessed through a son. So he's tracing now Jesus, in, connecting Jesus to the genealogy of Abraham. If Jesus doesn't come from the genealogy or as, is not a descendant of Abraham, he's not the Christ. He's not the Christ. You see, that's why Nathaniel said, hey, 
Where's Jesus from? He's from Nazareth. Well, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What was wrong with, what was, 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 what was the name Nathaniel wrong? Or was he biblical? Can anything good, in other words, can anything of God's messiahship, can anything of God's personal, you know, anointed man come out of Nazareth? He had to be born where? Come out of meaning being born. Where must he have been born? Bethlehem. If he's not born in Bethlehem, Joe, he isn't the Messiah. Do you see it? This is tight. This is very, very tight. This is a knitted thing we're talking about. He's just not somebody coming from somewhere. So he is a son of Abraham. He comes through the, tri the tribe, through the family of Abraham. He must have that. He must be a descendant of Abraham. Why? Because he's promised. The son of David. Here's the title that was so often heard in the New Testament. You remember when Jesus is entering the city on the Passover, the last Passover, and the crowds are there. Remember the palm trees and all of that kind of thing. You remember all of that? And what did the crowds begin to say? Hosanna. 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 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, son of David. Do you remember what they said? <clears throat> Why? The word Hosanna is a word of praise, but it's also a word that says, save us. Save us. The word Hosea means salvation. Save us. It's a word of praise. It's a word of asking God in a trusting kind of way. Save us. It's a word that praises God in asking to be saved. Saved from what? Jesus is entering Jerusalem on the eastern side, and the Romans are coming in Jerusalem on the other side in order to, with six legions to protect the city from all these rabble-rousing Jews on their day of celebration. It's like being New Orleans on Mardi Gras Day. You, we bring what? State police in. Are you with me? Have you been here before? And so they say, look, Rome's coming in. Save us. Save us, son of David. Save us, son of David. Why do they call him son of David and associate his saving ability and power and work with the son of David? They, they're connecting something. They understand the Old Testament better than we do because obviously they live there and we need to understand it better. So it, it is a praise. It is a praise. But it's a praise unto God. It is a request unto God in a trusting way. Save us from the Romans. Deliver us. Jesus, Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah to come in and get them out of the Roman rule. Are we following this morning? This is what that means. So the next time, you know, we're doing Passover and Hosanna, son of David, you'll have a better understanding of what they mean. They're not meaning anything spiritual. They're meaning, hey, Get us out of here. Get us on, from underneath the rule of these crazy Romans. Son of David. Where is this from, essentially? What is the significance? 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14. The son of Abraham will be the promised Messiah. He will be the promised messianic son of David who will rule over an everlasting kingdom. Remember, David is king. And he says to the Lord, I want to build your house. And the Lord says, hey, okay, but you can't build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Do you remember the story? I'm going to build you a house. David, I'm going to build you a house. So here's what he says. I will raise up your descendant. I put the word seed in there because the modern translations put descendant. King James, I like that better, keeps it seed. 
I'm going to raise up your seed. What seed? The seed of the woman. Who said that? The seed of the woman. Come on, come on, come on. Let's connect it. What seed? What does God mean by seed? Sherry, he means the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15. I'm going to do in your house and give you that one whom I promise in Genesis 3.15. Do you see it, Stephen? Why? Why would I do that? Because I gave a promise in Genesis 1.26 that these people will be according to my image and after my likeness. Correct? You see, the faithfulness of God is never primarily to his people. It's always to himself as exemplified in his son. The promise and the faithfulness of God is his faithfulness to his own character. Therefore, he is faithful to us. Never make you and me the object of God's faithfulness. He is himself the object of his own faithfulness. Amen. We must see that. That stabilizes us. That causes us to be, you know, good and strong. Otherwise, if his faithfulness is to me, Pat, I may do something that knocks me out of his faithfulness. I may say something, go somewhere, do something. I could lose God's faithfulness if it's primarily for me. But if his faithfulness is anchored in himself, can I cause him to become unfaithful? Cody, can I cause God to become unfaithful to himself? No, never. You see, this is why we must make sure in any and every context, we recognize and actively understand the centrality of God in anything and everything. We must always begin, continue, and end with God, are we getting this? Life is about God. Life is for God, and life is from God. Whatever is going on when you, if, when you, in your life, it's about God. However you're reacting to what is going on in your life is about God. Whatever you're going to do about this thing that is going on in your life, is about God. Do we see it? There's nothing, not one heartbeat, that is not about God. Right, Steve? It's all about Him, from Him, and for Him. Everything. See what we read in, in Psalm 89, 3 through 4. The, this this promise. Oh, wait, wait. I didn't. Let me read the promise again. I got to the first word and I left it. I will raise up your seed who will come forth from you. In other words, this will be a human being who will be born out of the lineage of David. He's not going to kind of float down and be among us. And I will establish his kingdom. Oh, he shall build a house for my name. By the way, what house is that? What's the house of God? The church. The church. You see, he's talking about a corporate people who will be the living expression of who God is. This one man is going to build the house of God, the church. You see how unique he is. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
wow, this can't be just Josh. This can't be just another guy. I mean, what's your name again? Duncan? Jason. I said, Josh, this can't be just another man. How can a man establish an eternal kingdom? I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. You see the purpose? Do you see the purpose of God in anything and everything he's doing? I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Why? Because it is according to God's eternal plan that he will have a people in his image. Genesis 1.26. That is that verse stated differently. May I continue to hammer into our hearts and minds the significance and the continuity and the comprehensiveness of the word of God from the very beginning to the end. So do we see Genesis 126 in that? Are you seeing it in there? Yes. There it is right there. Those of you in television land, it's there. Look what Psalm 89, 3 and 4 reiterates the same thing. He says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed, remember that, after and build up your throne to all generations. All generations, he tells Abraham, all generations, all these people. He says in Genesis 1, you're going to fill the earth. All these, you just see how it all is the same thing. Are we following? This is the same thing from the very beginning. It's one grand move of God after the fall, which he already knew to establish the reality and the fulfillment of his eternal purpose for Genesis 1-1. That's what's going on here. Now, the immediate context of this promise is Solomon. Remember Solomon? Remember this great King Solomon? I mean, doing the study of Solomon, except for his sin and so on, and who he was and what happened to him and the extent of his kingdom, you see such a revelation of the kingdom of God. So Solomon is the immediate context. David, you're going to have a son. His name is Solomon. He's going to have many sons, but, you know, his name is Solomon. He's going to sit on the throne and whatever. But the, the, the promise is too great just to be Solomon. It is set in Solomon as a an example of one who will come after Solomon, whom Jesus years later says about himself, what? A what? Greater than Solomon. He says about himself, the greater than Solomon. I am the one <clears throat> who is pictured and for, uh, for pro is, is, I am the one who is promised in these verses. That's what Jesus is telling you there. So look what happens in Solomon, 1 Kings 1, 8, 28 to 30. Then King David said, call Bathsheba to me. And do you remember Bathsheba? She's the one who was on the uh, porch, you know, taking a bath, and she and David, <laughs> you remember that? Some of you remember that? We have young ones in here, but say, <laughs> okay, remember Bathsheba. <laughs> through this, hmm, through this, hmm, comes Solomon. What kind of grace is that? It reminds me of Romans 5.20, doesn't it? Where sin abounds, grace more than abounds. Remember 5.20 of Romans, the last part of the verse? 
So Bathsheba, you remember Bathsheba? <laughs> okay, I think you get it. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. She talking about David. And the king vowed and said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, distress, surely as I vow to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Okay, David, Solomon's going to sit on the throne. Now let's take a look at how the Lord references this son of David. In Samuel, first Samuel, sorry, second Samuel seven twelve. Go back to how he references Solomon. He says in verse twelve, This son of David will be David's descendant. What does that mean? Seed. He will be the one through whom the seed of the woman will come. Second, this son of David will have a kingdom. We're talking about the verses that say second. I've always get chronicles mixed up. That's why I have to pause. Second Samuel seven, because second uh, Chronicles, remember, 7 gives the prayer of Solomon. Verse 13, the son of David will build a house for Yahweh, the Lord. And fourth, in verse 14, God will be a father to him and a, and a son, and he will be a son to God. But you see, this son will not only be a man, but he's going to sit on the throne forever. There's a difference about this son. He's a monogeneous weos. He's a unique sort of son. He's not just another king who's going to sit on the throne and rule a kingdom for a little while. Look how Solomon's coronation is described in two scriptures. Listen to these scriptures about Solomon's coronation. First Chronicles 29, 23. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord or the throne of Yahweh as king instead of David. Who is sitting in the throne of God today? Anybody knows that? Who has ascended into heaven and is sitting in the throne of God with God? Jesus. Solomon is the only king where it says he sat on the throne of God over Israel. All the others sat on the throne of Israel. But he's saying something specific about Solomon. He's not only going to be a naturally great king, but he's going to be foreshadowing the king of of kings, the Lord of lords, who sits in the throne of heaven forever. You see that? The throne of God. <clears throat> then the next verse, second verse, the next verse. Then the Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal majesty, which had not been given any king before him in Israel. What is the significance of that? He's highly exalted Solomon. What do you see there? What verse have you listened to? How many of you recognize this? Wherefore also God has highly exalted him and has given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things on the earth and the heavens and things on the earth and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where is that? Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Who has been highly exalted? Jesus Christ. But Solomon is going to be a picture. So the word says, and the Lord highly exalted him. Why does he say that? 
He's not talking, he's using Solomon as a type to say that there is coming a king who will be a son of David or even the son of David who will be so unique that God will highly exalt him to the highest place in heaven. And that's, I believe when Paul writes those words in Philippians 2, he has this scripture in mind. I believe the Holy Spirit gave him that scripture in mind when he wrote that down, highly exalted. This is a coronation of this great one who is the greater than Solomon as Israel's royal Masonic, Masonic, Messianic deliverer. This is that monogenes weos, this unique son. However, unlike a mortal son, a normal man, if you would, this son of David is unique because he will rule over an everlasting kingdom. So we've seen the uniqueness here. We've seen uniqueness here. But there's something or there's some reason that he is unique other than these. There's something that causes these activities or illustrations of his uniqueness to be unique. There's something further down. There's a more fundamental understanding. And we'll begin to get into that more fundamental understanding as we go in next week. I think we'll get into it next week and begin to look at the Psalms, especially the Psalms of uh, the Messianic Psalms. Okay. Now, look, this morning, Keith is at home with COVID. Uh, Last night, we found out about this about 830, 9 o'clock. So I'm going to be sharing this morning. And uh, I just want to let you know this is going to say, I've heard some of this before. I, I just felt immediately when he texted us and he thought he had it, and it came to my mind. I said, you know, if you have this, if you can't come, I, I will do the sermon today and next week. And it's going to be kind of a compilation of what we study here, God is love. So you come today and next week. I've heard this before. Do stay, but if you've heard it before, just kind of contend with us, and we'll walk through it. But do be praying. Amen. Thank you so much.